0: Merry Christmas, and I think it's appropriate, Happy New Year. We are coming to the end of one year, moving into the next. It's the season when many people look back, reflect, and then take the time to set some goals for the next year. And I'm wondering, what kind of questions did you ask last year? What kind of goals did you set last year that now, looking back, seem not applicable at all, if not irrelevant? I mean, the circumstances that took place in 2020, I don't think anybody could have seen it coming. And if what happened, if it set you off, if it made life almost unmanageable, if it made most of your plans irrelevant, or if it shook you to the core of your foundation, maybe it can still be redeemed if it leads us to something better, better questions, better goals that supersede current events, even when you consider what happened in this last year. As I was reflecting recently, I wrote down this sentence, how could I position myself for the best year ever? Now that sounds like a real rah-rah type of optimistic goal, given what we've just experienced, even crazy. And then I added these two words, with God. How could I position myself for the best year ever with God? Is that a valuable thing? I mean hey, I'm a pastor, we're in this kind of setting, church at home, maybe it seems rhetorical, Uh, the churchy answer is obvious, but I'm really asking, do my actions really say yes, that I really believe it would be the most valuable thing? All of us have sort of a a reward function in our brain when we experience something, it lights up, whether it's, you know, you're an adrenaline person or whether you love competition and it's a win, whether it's a board game or a field game. Or maybe it's a relationship and you experience a good relationship. Your brain, the reward part of your brain lights up. And I'm just thinking, wouldn't the best thing ever to make God the center of my life and my greatest reward to encounter Him, to know Him, to experience Him? You know, it is possible to have had the opportunity to encounter God and completely miss the moment. I'd love for you to take your Bible with me and go to Luke chapter 2. But before we get there, most of us know that in the ministry of Jesus, when he's an adult, he's going about teaching with great authority. People, are flocks of people are following him, listening to him. He's healing people, casting out demons, doing miracles, feeding the 5,000, and yet... People are divided over him. They aren't sure whether they believe in him, trust in him. It is said of his own hometown that Jesus could hardly do any miracles there because there was so much doubt. Later, Jesus laments over the city of Jerusalem as he looks over it because they've missed their time of visitation. They didn't recognize their moment. But we go today to Luke chapter two, and we see people who did recognize their moment. Who did encounter God? Their lives speak. We're going to start at verse 22, just the context before we get there. The writer Luke has just told us about the birth of Jesus, and we've seen the angels declare to the shepherds. They've, they've gone to see Jesus in the manger, and, and they leave that place celebrating and wanting to tell everyone of what they've experienced. And now this, verse 22. Mary and Joseph have encountered God previously. I mean, you think about it an angel, um, miraculous conception, a glorious birth. But they're about to encounter God again, this time through another human being. And what Luke wants to make sure we notice is their encounter happens in the midst of their obedience. As he writes, according to the law of Moses, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, Luke doesn't want us to miss it. Joseph and Mary did not need another message from an angel. They didn't need some kind of divine note as to what to do with their son as they begin to raise him. They had the word of God. In the Old Testament, there were some clear instructions what to do for a woman after she's given birth and what to do with your firstborn son. So after 40 days of purification as prescribed in the law, they come to the temple. They're going to present their son, Jesus. Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what is asked of them in God's word. In Luke, the word fulfill or fulfillment is a big theme. And we have seen how it's very much about God fulfilling his promises. But the wording is really interesting here in verse 22. In the American Standard Version, it puts it this way. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were fulfilled, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Luke wants to show us that as God is fulfilling his promises, so are Mary and Joseph fulfilling what is required of them by God. And the two meet for an encounter with God. This is the biblical way. I mean, we know the story of God is all about what God can do. It's completely dependent upon him. But in his way, God chooses to use human beings, and in particular, their obedience, to accomplish his purposes. Think about that the next time you're in the valley of decision when you're weighing out a choice whether to follow God and be obedient to him or this other way. You know the right thing, what you should do. But there's this other thing, and it's so tempting. It looks so right and so good. Where are you going to encounter God? Where are you going to experience Him? Know His working? In the place of obedience. As Mary and Joseph bring their offering, Luke wants to make sure that we know that they are people of no great disposition, that you don't have to be of a certain status in order to encounter God. We are told in Leviticus 12 that Um, The couple were to offer a burnt offering and a sin offering. One was to be a lamb offering, the other a turtle dove or a pigeon. But in this case, they offer two turtle doves or two pigeons, according to the law, if they could not afford it. They are not people of great wealth. They are of humble estate, as as Mary has proclaimed earlier. Wealth, status, position, uh, this does not position you to encounter God. There are things that matter much more than that. Luke wants to show us. Enter Simeon. We read in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Very little is said to us about this man named Simeon, except for a couple of things that Luke wants to make sure that we notice. Now when you think about your own life, and you think of... Others were to talk about you. What would you want them to point out about you that would distinguish you? What do you want your personal brand to be all about? What distinguishes Simeon? He is righteous and devout. Not that he has certain, a certain accumulation, a certain business, wealth, education, family. He is righteous and devout. That word righteous throughout scripture refers to a person who really lives by faith in God. This becomes more clear in the New Testament, especially through the writings of the Apostle Paul who spoke about it a lot, and also through the clarification of the church leader James. Paul makes it very clear, we are saved by faith and faith alone. There is nothing we can do to work our way, earn our way to a right relationship with God and be declared righteous for that reason. But James wants us to know that the nature of that saving faith loves to please God and to do his work. So a righteous person believes in God for their salvation with all that they have. And then they want to do things that please God. They want to walk in alignment with God because they profess their faith in him. Simeon is that kind of person he is righteous and devout and this would not have been easy in his day i don't know about you but sometimes we find ourselves in environments where it is hard to follow god it's hard to be a person who is walking in his ways maybe you're in a in relationships with friends that you know they're not really supporting you in your walk with jesus or maybe your family not only doesn't support you maybe they try to tear you down or maybe it's just the the kind of the current of our culture that you find so hard to resist again and again and again. It can be hard. And so it was for Simeon. Author, theologian, pastor, uh, Michael Milton says this. The faith of Israel was corrupted by a religious ruling class that was made up of legalistic Pharisees on one side and worldly Sadducees on the other side. The word of the Lord was silent. Prophecy was non-existent. Evil and ruthless rulers like Herod governed the land. It was not an easy setting for Simeon to follow God, and yet the scripture says he was righteous and devout, and that he was waiting, he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. We wait, we, we hope, we look forward to something when we believe that that something is gonna bring us good. Children can't wait for Christmas to come because of the, the good they anticipate when it arrives. The consolation of Israel, this was the hope of Simeon what is your hope? I mean, in the bigger picture, what are you most looking forward to? I think in one way, all of us are looking forward to a little more normalcy in our world. But let's say the vaccine solves the problem of COVID-19 and any mutations that come from it. Will that really be enough? Before 2020, didn't all of us have some unmet expectations that we hoped would find fulfillment? Did we not all have problems that we wanted a solution to? Did we all not observe injustice that we wanted to be fixed? Will a vaccine fix all that? I don't think so. You see, we will always be hoping for more. We will always be hoping for better because we were created for that. We were created for God and the world made right by him. That is Simeon waiting for, looking for the consolation, or that can be translated, the comfort, the rescue of Israel. Israel's history had been um, sprinkled with very difficult times from uh, being slaves to punishment to oppression. And right in this moment with Simeon, finds itself under the nasty rule of, of Rome. And yet in that moment, Simeon still has the faith in God to hope for something better. He's hoping for the promises of God to be fulfilled. He's positioned himself with righteous living, with a God-fearing attitude and a hope that will not die and sustains itself in the midst of very difficult times. And as he's positioned himself in this place, there's something that's said of Simeon, that is only what God can do, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We read in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is an amazing God encounter. I mean, again, fast forward and and you see the life and ministry of Jesus when he's an adult. Um, He's speaking with authority and power. He's doing miracles. He's walking on the water. He's calming the sea. He's causing the lame to walk and the blind to see, but people can't get who he is. And yet here's Simeon and Simeon can see. He comes into the temple court and he can see in a baby and he can hold that baby and know that this is the one, this is the promised one. This is the salvation that God has promised. Simeon doesn't need to see anything more. He's a man of faith, remember, and holding that baby in his arms, he knows that God is true and good on his word and that salvation is accomplished for me, for you, for all people. Simeon says something here that invites all of us into a relationship with God to know that what God has done is for each and every person. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon's ready to die. His hope's been fulfilled. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is an amazing insight by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there were places where Scripture mentions how God is going to fold in the Gentiles to be part of his people. But it was so difficult for for the Israelites to see that. Fast forward just a couple of chapters to Luke chapter four and we see the story of Jesus as he begins his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath as was his custom and he goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he talks about how the spirit is upon him to preach the gospel to the poor, to bring liberty to the captives and the oppressed. It caused the lame to walk, to proclaim the year of favor of the Lord. And it says, as he sat down, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And, and it would have been a great ending, except Jesus stirs the pot. You see, he knows that they are going to reject him, that they won't accept everything that he has to say. And so he says this to them. He talks about how God will reach outside of Israel to the Gentiles. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman. The Syrian, these words of Jesus infuriated the people and they took him in their anger and carried him to the outskirts of the city of Nazareth. They took him to these cliffs. And I've stood in that place in Nazareth where it was likely, where it likely happened. They were going to throw him over the cliff. Jesus, the son of God. They missed their moment. And it says Jesus walked away from them in their midst. The glory of Israel was also a light for revelation to the Gentiles." You know, I don't think Simeon understood, like many prophets, the fullness of what God was speaking through them in the moment. Um, I don't think Simeon would have seen that God's plan of salvation would come through Jesus Christ in, in the way of the cross, Him dying on the cross and rising from the dead, and then. Everything would not be made right in the world in that moment, but God would give this space of time of hundreds of years, reaching all the way to us, giving space for people to turn to God like we have the opportunity today to turn to Him and every generation before us. I don't think Simeon saw that, but the one thing that he did get was that salvation would be in this child, would be in Jesus alone, and His salvation was for all people. We read on. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And his sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of, from many hearts may be revealed. I think every parent wants to think their child is special. I mean, look at your gene pool. How could your child not be special, right? Mary and Joseph had already heard some amazing things through the mouth of the angel about their son. But they hear some more now through Simeon. More about their son is revealed to them. And I I like this because sometimes we think we've had an encounter with God, but often God has more for us. I mean, when you think about who God is, why wouldn't there be more? but we shouldn't think that our encounters with God would necessarily lead us to an easier way of life. There is a stream within Christianity, a perspective that is very strong on the idea that if we just, you know, we position our life right, or we speak the right words, we will be healed. We will get what we want. We'll get the finances. We'll, we'll get the problem solved. Simeon here is blessing Mary and Joseph. The one who has the insight of the Holy Spirit, the one who the Holy Spirit is resting upon him, is speaking on behalf of God, and and he blesses them with favor, but he also tells them the truth. He wants to position them for a life of faithfulness because of what is yet to come, a mixture of circumstances and emotions in the life of Jesus. Simeon says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I mean, it's an understatement that Jesus' ministry would not always be well received. Sometimes it would be violently opposed. When my girls were younger, there was a time when both of them were serving in a restaurant together, and in order to support them, I would go and have a meal there. And it wasn't necessarily all that well run and there were occasions when they were short staffed and when I was there and that was happening I could observe how they're trying to do their best to serve their customers but it was almost impossible to do. And you had notice that some people were getting a little agitated and if not outright grumpy with them. And You know as a parent you just you want to go over there and just help them understand a little bit. It would be difficult for Mary to be the mother of Jesus. He would be One upon whose ministry would cause some to fall and some to rise. He would be opposed. Um, He would not always be looked at with favor. I mean, I I think sometimes we have this idea, even today in our Christian faith, that, you know, if we just say things right, everybody will like us. But it didn't work that way for Jesus. And as winsome as we might try to be, it won't work that way for us. Our, Our goal is not to be liked. Our goal is to be faithful. And as Mary observes Jesus' life, it is very difficult. Her soul is pierced. It's hard to understand all that God is working through him, especially when it would come to her son laying down his life on a cross. I can't imagine how hard that must have been for her. Encountering God, we experience him, we know him more. I mean, there's nothing greater, but it does not mean that we will be kept from a life of difficulty and hard circumstances. We read in verse 36 of a woman named Anna. And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seventy-seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You know, Anna experienced some very difficult circumstances in her life. She'd been married but seven years, and after that, a widow. She'd experienced many new years, new year after new year, after New Year, and yet she's still waiting, still hoping for the world to be made right by God. And yet, in all her difficult circumstances, she does not allow that to drive her to bitterness. She allows it to drive her to push, position herself to encounter God. She's in that place where you're likely to meet God. The meeting place of God was the temple, and she positions herself in that place and spends her life worshiping God, fasting, fasting, and prayer. Her focus, like Simeon, is a focus on God. And she too, like Simeon, sees. She knows it. She's just seeing a baby, but she knows it. The salvation of God is here, and she has positioned herself for that encounter. I think about the new year for us, and how we want to position ourselves to encounter God as a church church. In January, we'll be having 21 focused days of prayer. We want to come and position ourselves with an attitude of humility and, and looking to God, seeking God, and seeing how God wants us to partner with Him in prayer as we fast and pray in that season and encounter Him. You know, I've had many conversations with people over the years, and people will say to me sometimes, you know, I just, I just feel like, I don't know. My Christian faith is just tradition. There's like, There's no life to it. I'm just just not experiencing God. And I have to admit, in my own life, there are times when when I feel dry, when it seems like God is silent. But I know this. James chapter 4 tells us, when we draw near to God, He He draws near to us. And as I look back on those times so often of dryness, the problem has not been with God. The problem has been with me. See, if you and I give God hardly any time, if we're we're seldom ever reading his scripture, meditating on his word, if we're not pursuing him in Christian community with others that can help build us up and, you know, inflame that pursuit of him, if we're hardly ever feeding our soul and spirit with God things, should we really expect to encounter God I'm not talking about some kind of works-based relationship with God. I'm talking about a real relationship with God. See, if you and I have a friend, and the only time we spend time with them is when we want something, or if we say, hey, I really value you, but we never make space for conversation and just be together, are we ever really going to be tight? Is there going to be much of a relationship that's going to grow and develop? So it is with God. I so want you to encounter God. I so want us as a church family to encounter God. But you know what? I know someone who wants that even more. God. God. God wants us to encounter, to experience Him, and to know Him. So what do we do? Well, in those places where we know that there's disobedience in our life, it's pretty simple, isn't it? We need to turn from those things and turn to God, ask for his help to begin to do the right thing. Where is that for you? See, I know as I'm talking, we're in all kinds of different places. Where's that place of obedience, that place of meeting God that he's calling you into? Where is that for you? I think we can also think about our rhythms of our life. Like what what do they look like and what could be shifted and how could we help one another? Let's say you're a married couple or in a family. How could we help one another to, to shift our rhythms to make space and things like reading God's word and prayer to encounter Him? Ask God. Share with one another. And then let's all do this. Let's ask God to help us because God wants us to have a deep personal experience of Him. That's why He came.